Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Peter Van Geitenbeek and Ron Cordes, and they'll be answering your most important questions on the Federation of Fly Fishers. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask a question, just go to our homepage at www.askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says, Click here to ask Van or Ron your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll answer as many of your questions live on the show as possible. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. If you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast anytime. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Van and Ron and take an in-depth look at the Federation of Fly Fishers. Once in a generation, an innovation comes along that turns an industry on its head. In fly fishing, this is without a doubt the AST generation. AST, Advanced Shooting Technology, is Scientific Angler's patented dry-slick coating that enhances every aspect of floating line performance. Shootability, castability, floatability, durability. Look for AST in Scientific Angler's Mastery Series and Ultra 4 fly lines. And please remember, try an AST-formulated line just once, and no other fly line will ever do. Visit www.scientificanglers.com or call 800-430-5000. That's 800-430-5000 to find your nearest Mastery Series dealer. Before we introduce Van and Ron, we'd like to let you know about the great gift we have to give away tonight. For our drawings tonight, the Federation of Fly Fishers has been kind enough to provide a one-year family membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. This is a great gift as there are many benefits to being a member, and you'll soon find out about them on our show tonight. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under the Federation section that says Register for the Drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll be announcing the winner at the end of the show. Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest tonight. First, we have Peter Van Geitenbeek, a fan as he's called, has served in various management capacities with the Federation of Fly Fishers since 1980. For the past two years, he has served his now second term as president of the board, and he is also CEO. After attaining a bachelor's degree from Princeton, he embarked on a highly successful business career. He played an active role on the board at Trout Unlimited in the 60s and 70s and was executive director of that organization from 1969 to 74. He authored the book, The Way of Trout, in 1971, and in 1994, Van conceptualized and produced the magazine Fly Fishing in Salt Waters. He then sold the magazine in 1997, but re remained on board as the publisher through 2002. His devoted involvement in a host of conservation and benevolent organizations has contributed to establishing a worldwide network of contacts which have benefited the Federation and its many goals. Welcome, Van. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. 
Our, our other guest tonight, Ron Cordes, will assume the position of chairman of the board of the Federation of Fly Fishers at the end of this month when the organization convenes at its annual conclave in Bozeman, Montana, July 26th through 29th. Ron's background includes a law degree from Berkeley and bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. degrees in chemical engineering. His accomplishments in the fly fishing world include editor of Fly Fisherman Magazine and Fly Fishing Heritage. He's a widely published contributor to fly fishing periodicals, and he authored several books, including Lake Fishing with a Fly, The Backpacker's Guide to Fly Fishing, and he co-authored the Cordes LaFontaine Pocket Guide series. Ron's recent service on the board and as vice chairman are perfect preparation for assuming the mantle of chairman. Right, Ron? Yes, it certainly is. I'm anxious to see you going. <laughs> right. Well, Van and Ron, you both must be very busy right now getting ready for this upcoming conclave. Uh, so we do appreciate your time. We know it's, it's value about this time of year. Well, gentlemen, why don't we start at the beginning, and you guys feel free to jump in here wherever you see fit. How did the Federation get started, and uh, what, was, what was it founded on? It's kind of an interesting story how it got started. Um, <clears throat> Trout Unlimited was fledgling in 1965, and some of the board and others got together and had a meeting in, in Aspen. And at that meeting, uh, Martin Bovey and, and some of the fellows in Trout Unlimited on that board uh, got at loggerheads with Lee Wolf and Gardner Grant and some of the others um, who were involved in early TU over the issue of, of fly fishing, fly fishing only, and, and hook and release. And uh, uh, TU was taking a position of it has to be science, and the Federation, soon-to-be federators, um, took the position that, that fly fishing was the most conservative way uh, to do their fishing, coupled with hook and release, and they agreed to disagree. And so later that year, uh, the first conclave was held in Eugene, Oregon in 1965. That's the beginning. And you said uh, some of the, were some of the key individuals there that, uh, that got things started? Oh gosh, uh, well, Lee Wolf is probably the best, the best known, uh, Gardner Grant, uh, Gene Anderig, uh, who was the, uh, Nikon, uh, U.S. representative and who traveled all over the country and he was sort of the, the, uh, the Johnny Appleseed who went around forming clubs. What they did in the beginning was, and the, the concept in the beginning was to have affiliated clubs and we had this loose affiliation or federation of fly fishing clubs from all over the country. And by the time they got uh, later that year, by the time they got to Eugene, um, they had some 20 clubs. And uh, Gene probably was the most single responsible for that. Gardner Grant was very strong. Lee Wolf, uh, <clears throat> Bill Nelson, uh, Skip Hosfield, uh, lots of names uh, from both coasts. It seems like the idea was germinating in both coasts and different people. There's been some argument back and forth as to who really started it. Uh, Ernie Schwiebert, while he was alive, would tell you that uh, that the idea started at uh, a club of <clears throat> fishermen that used to get together every week in New York, and and uh, the fellows on the West Coast would say, well, no, it really started in L.A. But the truth of the matter, I think, is that both groups had the idea, and it came together uh, with that breakup in Aspen and an agreement to go out and have a conclave. Okay, and, and you're headquartered now in Livingston, Montana? Right. And um, uh, we're wondering, uh, what, what is there to see if someone were to stop in at the headquarters? 
Well, interestingly, a, a pretty worthwhile display. We have a thing called the Fly Fishing Discovery Center, which is in an old schoolhouse in, uh, in Livingston, Montana. And um, there's a terrific collection of memorabilia, uh, fly fishing, fly tying. Uh, many of the famous fly fishermen uh, of days past uh, have tackle and uh, even a full uh, room of fly tying gear from, from one individual. Fly plates, uh, the history of rods, it's, it's pretty interesting. We've got a good steady flow. This year we have a special display on the fishes of Lewis and Clark, which was uh, put together over the last year and is uh, part of the celebration. This is the year when Lewis and Clark came back, and it was at that time that they came through Yellowstone and, and, and down the Yellowstone River. So that's why it's, uh, it opened for us this year. So basically, small offices are here too. So basically, we have a, a museum of sorts in in Livingston. We do, and it's a and, and it's a teaching museum. We do a tremendous amount of teaching. And uh, gosh, this afternoon I walked through downstairs, and uh, gosh, there were twenty two or three wide eyed youngsters sitting on the floor uh, in front of a live tank with uh, our gentleman Matt Wilhelm, who's a lead on on uh, education teaching them and it's just fun to stand there in the door and watch those kids just uh, uh, eat up the information. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us about the organization of the uh, Fly Fishers Federation? Ron, you want to take a crack at that? Well, basically we've, we've got the uh, structure set up so that various regions of the country, various states, <clears throat> work together in councils. I believe now we've got like on the order of 12 councils van. Yes. Something like that. <clears throat> and then uh, within those councils are the various clubs and the various individual members of the Federation. And some of our clubs, of course, uh, are more active than others and, and work closely with the council hierarchy. But that's uh, basically the structure. So, so we have two, two kinds of clubs, uh, the affiliate club, which is what we started with. And uh, more recently, we've had uh, a demand for and have created some 70 five or eight clubs, which we call charter clubs, and they are very much like a Trout Unlimited chapter. All the members are members of the, the Federation and, and have a, derived the direct benefits, as opposed to an affiliate club, which is just a, a group of fly fishers or others, it could be an Audubon club for that matter, that believes in what we're doing and, and feels strongly enough to affiliate with us. I think between uh, the two of those categories, we have on the order of about uh, 340 clubs. Wow. That's about right. I'd like to come back to the clubs in just a second, but uh, one of the questions, talking about, you know, the, the principles you guys were founded on and so forth, we've got a question in from uh, Ted Seibalt in Castle Rock, Colorado. And his question is, what is the difference in uh, objectives between the FFF and Trout Unlimited, and is there any sense to combining the two to make one common organization, thereby eliminating the duplicity of efforts and saving money? Well, the, the differences um, are, are really easy and quite pronounced, but we kind of forget them at times. Uh, the Federation is involved with all fish and all waters and is very definitely a method organization. We believe that fly fishing coupled with hook and release is the most conservative way to approach our sport, conservative for the, for the uh, resource. Trout Unlimited, uh, in my stump speeches years ago, the first thing I used to say is Trout Unlimited is not a method organization. And we go on to talk about the fact that, you know, we go back to science and try to, <clears throat> try to uh, structure our program based on what was the best science for the resource. 
recently one of uh, the TU people with whom we work very closely these days uh, said, you know, you guys are the educators and you do some real good conservation. He said, we're the conservationists and we do some pretty good education. And forgetting about the all fish, all waters thing, uh, that's a pretty good definition of the uh, differences between the two organizations when they're operating in the uh, in the Salmonid arena. Yes, because you, you do, uh, when you say all fish, all waters, we're talking about saltwater fly fishers as well as freshwater. And, and uh, what, what about internationally? Are you international or just in the, the U.S. at this time? We have 16 uh, affiliate nations, if you will. It just, just means affiliate clubs in places like uh, um, Japan and Australia and South Africa and, of course, most of the European uh, nations and our friends to the north. Uh, so those and those affiliates really we share information. We try to give them uh, various things that they need. They all subscribe to our casting certification program. We work very closely with many of the nations on that. Um, but they are affiliates. We don't claim them as members. They pay a small fee each year, and it's more of a <clears throat> you help me and we'll help you. Interestingly enough, every night on the order of 70 to 100 uh, countries access the uh, Federation website. Wow. From all over the world are, are looking in. Yeah. How many members do you have, uh, all told, in the organization? At the regular members, which is a, a full-time member uh, of various types, there are a little over 12,000 at this point. And within the clubs, uh, there are about 36,000, 37,000 uh, affiliate members. Okay. Well, you mentioned some of the, the different aspects of, of the program for the Federation, and education is one of, one of the, the strengths. Um, among your educational activities, uh, you have a ca fly casting certification program. Yeah, could, I, could I go back for time? Yes, please. Me, I, want to, I don't think we got Mr. Thiebaud's question totally answered. I didn't uh, finish up on that, if I, mm -hmm. I may. He was asking about uh, the, the possibility of combining the two organizations, and as uh, you gentlemen all know, once upon a time, in 1972, I think, the Federation uh, uh, came to uh, TU and with the idea of putting the two together, not losing their identity, but sharing facilities and so forth. And surprisingly enough, it was the Trout Unlimited Board that, uh, that by one vote, <laughs> that voted that down. But today we have a very close working relationship with Trout Unlimited. Uh, we we uh, are shoulder to shoulder on many, many projects uh, in most battles, and uh, we count them as our uh, one of our very most important allies. Yep. Excuse me for jumping in, but no, I didn't want to clear uh, that. I appreciate that, that insight. And uh, I've uh, seen a number of clubs which actually uh, share memberships in both the organizations. That's That's correct. Well, let's, uh, uh, could you just comment on the educational programs that the Federation offers and specifically uh, perhaps deal with the casting certification program? Ron, you want to take that on? Oh, why don't you go ahead, Van? You're, you're okay. up to your elbows in it. <laughs> you're right. Uh, gosh, it's been about uh, 11 or 12 years ago that uh, some of the luminaries in, in fly fishing, the Lefty Grays and uh, uh, Gary Borchers and Mill Creekers, etc., felt that we really needed some standards in fly casting and especially fly casting teaching because you know it's very the teaching is very important to us as it is to everybody who cares about fly fishing. And so <clears throat> this group of, of fly fishers set apart to uh, or set about to create standards, which they did. And uh, 
it was kind of a rocky launch. It wasn't done as well as it could, but uh, people with uh, faith kept at it. And today we have what I think is an absolutely excellent program. There's a certified caster. That's that's step one. <clears throat> you can get to be a master caster. Uh, those are the people who certify uh, the casting instructors. And, and uh, then there's also a new category, which is the spay casting category, which, of course, is also being used in salt water these days. And uh, the testing goes on at, uh, normally it shows if there's a Ferimsky show, for instance, the fly fishing show, someplace in the country there will almost always be testing going on. We do testing here uh, in Livingston. Whenever people, whenever we've got a group of people who are ready to be tested, who, who've indicated they want to take the test, then we get a certified caster together with them <clears throat> and administer the tests. And it is not easy. Um, it's not just casting, it also is teaching because the important thing here is that these individuals are going to go out in our name and teach people and, uh, and we want them to be taught properly. There are about uh, a little over 1,200 uh, certified casters now of whom I think 354 are uh, masters and the only reason I know that is because Molly Semenek who's a wonderful uh, teacher and guide up uh, here in Livingston uh, just Got hers, and she was 354, and uh, <clears throat> one of the one of the number of women who are testing and, and joining these days. Now, are, there are are there um, uh, educational opportunities that you offer as well besides the casting certification, right? You bet. <clears throat> well, what yeah, are some two, of those? The two things that we're founded on that this organization is the, the two legs. One is conservation, the other is education. So education takes many forms, obviously, as does the conservation program. We've worked for a number of years with the Boy Scouts. We helped write the fly casting uh, merit badge manual. And we work uh, <clears throat> in many uh, clubs throughout the country uh, with the boys, not only at the troop level, but sometimes the camp level, sometimes council level, etc. Um, and that's the thing we've been trying to figure out with the Boy Scouts working with them is, is working on a method of teaching the older Scouts to the point where they're able to go back and teach the younger. And we've at the Joan Wolf School, we ran that as a, um, a sample program a year ago. Uh, it's been operative in Florida, and I think uh, we're all going to embrace it. It's working very nicely. <clears throat> we work with other groups, obviously 4-H, uh, some of the Girl Scout troops, and so forth. Uh, one of the things we do is work with the fly shops around the country um, to get them to teach. We look at that as a funnel, and if we can, uh, you know, get the shops to teach more and more youngsters, uh, we'll be able to have our constituency in the in the future years. So we work very closely helping the shops. Uh, got a toot Ron's horn here for a minute. He put together this incredible instructional manual, which I've carried around now for a number of months. Every shop that sees it, every club that sees it, they've just got to have it. And so we're turning these out in numbers and, and getting them in the hands of, of our shops. So it's part of our shop program to support education. Um, we have a great program uh, in education that we've been working with uh, Walter Reed Medical Center uh, with our amputee uh, vets coming back uh, from Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And uh, we found that that uh, the amputees uh, are able to get involved in fly tying, which is very important to uh, those who've got upper body trauma. It helps them in their manual dexterity. Um, <clears throat> obviously, the fly fishing aspect is important, and probably most important is the mental aspect. It gives them these people something to look at. We have a wonderful. Uh, Ranger First Lieutenant who sort of leads this particular group uh, in Walter 
read right now, and he will tell you that when he got out of the uh, the medical side, he really wanted a one-day pass so he could go do himself in. He just didn't want to live anymore, missing a leg, and so on and so forth. And uh, It's an exciting program. What we're doing now is matching up those people that are coming out and other going, stepping back and picking up the NOM vets who want to become involved um, and, and getting spreading this uh, program around the country. We're, we're very excited about that. Well, it sounds like the educational opportunities really provide an avenue for access to those who might not uh, know about fly fishing or even about the outdoors to, to some extent. Absolutely. Another program that, that we've uh, embraced is, is uh, called Family Ties. It's a program that's going on in the junior and senior high schools. Started in Pittsburgh area, it's in Pennsylvania, part of New York, and so forth. And uh, they were looking to expand with the help of one of the major uh, foundations uh, back east, and we formed an association together. And this is an all-year program that's rod building, it's fly tying, it's actually fishing, it's entomology. And it takes the kids all through the school year, and in the summer they're taken out to Montana or where they might want to go. But it involves the entire family, and there's really more to it than just the fishing. I mean, we get these young people out uh, in shows, for instance, where they get to talk about what they're doing. And it's, uh, you know, it's building youth, really, building uh, uh, youngsters that are confident. And uh, we're very excited about that program. Well, that, that, let's just take a brief break, and then we'll come back to this same subject. When we return, we'll be talking more with Van and Ron about the Federation of Fly Fishers. The R.L. Winston Rod Company is the maker of the revolutionary Boron 2X, the first and only fly rods that are both delicate yet powerful and weigh up to one-third less than others. Second-generation boron graphite composite allows us to build lighter, more responsive rods while maintaining outstanding fish-fighting power. Go to your local fly shop and ask to cast a Boron 2X, offered in 3 through 6 weight. And then enter our Cast a Winston Sampler Contest. You could win six Winston rods. Visit www.winstonrods.com for contest details and to locate a nearest Winston dealer. Cast a Winston at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Uh, we're talking with Van Van Geitenbeek and Ron Cordes about the Federation of Fly Fishers. And if you'd like to enter a question, just go to our home page www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show. Click where it says click here to ask Van and Ron your most important questions. We'll be getting to as many questions as we can. And, and Ron, I think you wanted to follow up on uh, the educational aspect. Yeah, I just had one quick comment. Uh, one of the fascinating educational moments uh, in the annual educational workings of the Federation is, is the conclave. I don't think a year has gone by that I didn't look at that list of classes and seminars and workshops and just have my jaw drop. It is absolutely unbelievable. It's typically over 100 opportunities to be taught by experts in the field. And if anyone listening is interested in taking a look at what this year's agenda is, they can go up on the website, the Federation website, and take a look at all the particulars associated with the conclave, uh, including all the uh, seminars and workshops. Well, Ron, Van had mentioned that you had put together this instructional manual and so forth for the shops, and, and I believe he's referring to the, the scouting troops and so forth. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Uh, could you explain more about that? And, and we have a lot of people that are, are shop owners that listen to our show, 
and may not know about that. Could you explain that program and how they might get involved with that? Certainly. You know, it's interesting you should ask me that question because uh, earlier this evening I received an email from a professor at a college in the southeast who wanted more information on the handbook because he wanted to use it in a course that he was going to teach. Interestingly enough, he was a Ph.D. molecular <laughs> geneticist, but he's teaching this course in fly fishing. At any rate, um, the handbook is designed in such a way as to, to be very functional. It's predicated on the pocket guides that Gary LaFontaine and I put together, and those pocket guides were designed in anticipation of the questions that we knew people were going to have. Uh, it's, it's very problem-solving oriented, very fundamental. So the handbook consists of 10, uh, ten modules, if you will, uh, one on fly tying, uh, one on knots, one on fly casting, dry fly fishing, nymph fishing, and so forth. And what, what's fascinating about them is that when you look at each page in any one module, the lesson itself takes the upper left hand one-third of a page. The rest of the page is lined, and the idea is that if an instructor is going to teach a class on nymph fishing, he goes to his master handbook, he pulls out the nymph fishing module, uh, he makes one copy for each of his students. He makes a copy for himself, and on that copy, he, he has room to make notes for some additional things that he wants to say, comments, whatever. And the students, in turn, have spaces for them to take notes. So all the relevant material on a given topic that they want to take notes on is right there on the appropriate page. And when they leave that class, they've got something they can take with them to use as a future reference, unlike you know, a lot of classes where when you leave, you leave with nothing but uh, your memories. Well, that sounds like an incredible program. Uh, I'd I like to add, Ron, excuse me to jump in there, but Ron also, uh, you know, doesn't want to talk about what he's done to too great a degree, but one of the smart things he did among many was to uh, make it a, <clears throat> a loose leaf so we can add to as things change in the world and, and uh, we're able to add to and subtract from so we can always keep it up to date for the for the shop or the club that uh, that has the manual, and we're committed to do that. And at the same time, for instance, we're we're uh, adding a saltwater section. Uh, uh, we're we're changing one on fly casting. So, Ron thought that one out so that we can make this live for the user for years to come. Uh, I have to interrupt here for just a second. I did get a question come in over our uh, uh, over the internet. Evidently, the register link to register for our drawing was not showing. It is showing now, so those folks that went to register for that family membership can go there now. You might have to refresh your screen, press the, you know, click on the refresh button in the browser bar, and reload the screen, and then you should see that, that link there. So sorry about that, folks. Don, why don't you go ahead? Since Ron uh, raised the issue of the conclave, I thought I'd just explore that in a little bit more detail. Could you just uh, give us a brief rundown? You mentioned that there are 100 educational opportunities, and uh, could you tell us just a little bit about the conclave that's planned uh, here in the next 10 days up in Bozeman, Montana? Van, you want to hit that? Uh, sure. Um, the, the conclave is something, uh, the one here, the national conclave, is one we do every summer normally in, in uh, somewhere around Yellowstone and, and uh, often here in Montana. And it is a gathering of people who really care about fly fishing, uh, and we draw an awful lot of people off the street to boot. But as Ron mentioned, there are over 100 and that's 110 or 12 actually this year. 
classes on everything from handling a drift boat to tying particular flies to learning uh, casts. Uh, it just goes on and on. I mean, it is the doggonest collection of educational programs you've ever seen, and in most cases taught by somebody whose name you recommend from or recognize from uh, you know magazines or books or something. Uh, it goes on for for uh, three days. Uh, this year it's uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of next week. And it um, it's it's just a tremendous gathering of the clan, and that's a pretty good way to put it. And you sure can learn a lot if you want to come let up me, to There's programs um, for juniors, programs for women, and so on and so forth. Let me mention that um, this year it's been uh, basically structured into three segments, a fly casting workshop element, a fly tying workshop element, and a streamside and floating fishing clinic element. And I just went up on the website to <clears throat> take a look here. I'm just going to read a couple of titles to you. Here's one, Fly Fishing Strategies for Mountain Freestone Streams, Drift Boat Fishing, Improve Your Spring Creek Fishing Technique with Brand Oswald, Dry Fly Frame of Mind, Classic Nymphing, Guided Fishing in Southwest Montana, Effective Strategies for Fishing the Yellowstone River, Fishing a Spring Creek with Bob Jacklin, uh, Alien in a Familiar Environment, Spring Creek Chalk Streams and Problems Posed by Tranquil Waters, and fussy trout. So it's just on and on. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Well, I, I, I can't wait for it to start. Um, I do have a question that's been submitted, which is, uh, is it too late to sign up for some of the conclave programs? Um, yes, but <laughs> uh, the registrations and, and uh, sign-ups are closed, but there's there still are opportunities. And as you know, for all the various reasons, some people will be no-shows. So I talked to a number of folks today who are going to come, and they'll uh, queue up at the uh, at the registration desk, and, and they may not get their first choice or second choice of, of a particular class, but uh, they'll certainly have an opportunity to do something that will be interesting. And in each case, they said, you know, we'll take our chances and we'll come on up. So, uh, and, and we do everything we can to shoehorn people in so that nobody's left out and they do get a chance to... Yeah, to access the classes that they do want. Right. Now they can um, surely come up for even one day if they're in the area. And, oh, uh, sure. Yeah, enjoy it for a day. You also have a uh, an exhibition hall going on there as well, don't you? We do, very much like a fly show that you'd uh, that you'd go to. If I mentioned Chuck Faremsky's The Fly Show that uh, goes on all over the country. Uh, um, uh, we'll have... Uh, was it Ron? Sixty-five or seventy exhibitors this year, I think. Yes, on that order, yeah. And it has, you know, it has a little bit more of a conservation bent than you might see. I mean, some of the people uh, from the Trust for Public Land, one of our uh, partner organizations that we work very closely with, they'll have a Alva booth, and, and uh, uh, along with people like Scientific Anglers and the Winston Rod Company, etc. Now, are there other local events like this, this that the uh, Federation sponsors? You know, state or regional kinds of things? Very definitely, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because you know, obviously a lot of people aren't going to get to Montana this year or any year, uh, much as we'd love to have them. But uh, our <clears throat> many of our councils uh, do um, have shows that are uh, excellent. Northern California is, uh, for instance, in Redding, California, is a, just a fine show. Same format pretty much as what, as what we do. Oregon, Washington, uh, Michigan, Idaho, uh, 
Mid-South uh, people in Memphis just had a tremendous show. I mean, people like Lefty Gray and Dave Whitlock and folks like that. And the uh, Southeast Council puts one on in uh, at uh, Callaway Gardens in Georgia. The New Florida Council will have one in Orlando next year. So, yes, there are a number of them around, and uh, they'll be, uh, uh, once again, Ron keeps saying, mention my website. <laughs> So uh, we try to keep the schedule uh, up to date there and with uh, plenty of lead time so people can plan to go to one of these regional uh, expos or uh, conclaves. Well, it sure sounds like the conclave represents not only opportunities for education, but uh, also the chance to strike up some uh, friendships and relationships that might lead to some real uh, fishing opportunities in, in places that one might or not ordinarily go. Well, it's you know that's very true, and, and one of the things of, uh, that, of course, we do, and all of our clubs try to do, and that is to to be a friendly uh, uh, spot for a new angler in an area to, to go and learn about the waters and find a fishing buddy or two, and you know that's that's a lot uh, that goes on in fishing. It's an important part of fishing, and uh, we try to try to house that opportunity as best we can. Yes, and and in fact, uh, we've uh, on the, on that basis. Uh, We've initiated the events calendar on our website to facilitate that communication among people and to allow folks to uh, discover what kind of opportunities might exist in fly fishing in areas that they're traveling to. Or That's that a real sort service of thing, and that that may take some time to catch on because it's a a fairly new concept. But boy, you wouldn't believe the number of uh, of different opportunities that we've been made aware of. Since you mentioned the clubs, I wanted to just uh, touch on that a bit more. Uh, we have one question uh, from an individual who says he's from a remote area where there are no clubs and almost no fly fishers, and he wonders how, how would he get involved in the Federation of Fly Fishing and the educational and conservation end of that sport. I have you to know, tell you that when I, I saw that question, I jumped. Because... <laughs> As, as has been mentioned earlier, you know, the Federation is predicated on volunteer support. And we have a number of, of national committees working on a variety of very important projects, and we are always looking for assistance. And that assistance doesn't have to reside in Montana. It can come from anywhere in the country. So an individual like that who has the initiative to want to get involved should contact Van, find out, uh, you know, what committee activities are ongoing to see if, in fact, there's something there he would be particularly interested in being involved with. So That's they, interesting, Ron, because I put that note on that on that question, and it says it depends around. on where he is. Please call. <laughs> <laughs> and would one go to www.fedflyfishers.org to access that information? Well, actually, the the individual committees uh, might not necessarily be showing there, and, and what their activities are. It would be best uh, actually just to call Van. Just call or email. Just email it in here. And why don't you give us that contact information? <clears throat> that just comes in as Van V A N at FedFlyFishers.org, and that comes right in here to the office. And there is no avoiding it because when I come in in the morning, Ron has at least a half a dozen things <laughs> that he wants me to do, and uh, there's lots of other interesting things. So we we work real hard on trying to get responses back to people as quickly as possible. And, and of course, they're always welcome to call on the phone too if uh, if they prefer to chat. Well, that's I think that's incredible that uh, that you provide that kind of access to the very top of the organization. So there's really no excuse for anybody out there to get involved or to get answers to questions because you guys are just sitting there waiting, right? 
Oh, we, you know, we do answer, and, and it takes a lot of times. We work a lot of seven-day weeks, but I think, uh, you know, Ron and I both say we love what we're doing, what we're doing, and, and uh, you know, the availability is terribly important, and people should be able to get straight answers and get them quickly. You mentioned that, that this person that was out in the boondocks somewhere could uh, contribute and get involved. Is the majority of the work done in the FFF accomplished by volunteers and, and donation of time? Absolutely. Again, the opportunity is just call or, or email and uh, find out how they can get involved. If they are in an active area, probably the best thing is to, to go to a club meeting and see what's going on there as well. Sure, we try to match him, match him up, and, and you know it might be uh, it might be somebody depending on where he is, and 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 frankly, if it was in the Salmonid area and and there was a TU chapter close by and not an FFF club, I would tell him you know get over there to the TU chapter, make yourself known. Um, because, you know, they're in the war and the allies are, are important. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we've got to support each other. There aren't enough, <laughs> there are darn few allies and we need to help each other. So, you know, we do everything we could to connect him up with, uh, with his particular interests and with other fishers. Well, I have a couple of questions on folks who, uh, have expressed an interest in finding out about a Federation chapter near them. And uh, one is from Les in Layton, Utah. Do you happen to know offhand if there's a if there's a club nearby to? Uh, I'm not quite sure where Layton is in Utah, although I'm kind of guessing it's in the Salt Lake region. I think it's on the front. Yeah, I had the same question. I didn't get a chance to look at my map, but you know I will. But I was going to suggest that uh, if that gentleman would contact us, uh, I will get him. He also asked if I remember correctly uh, about starting a club. We'll send him a new club packet. And uh, at the same time, give him an idea of, of who uh, the members are that are close by. Oh, he's, he's and I'm digging in, for the Utah map. <laughs> yeah, he, he's interested in shortening his learning curve. He says that he's uh, decades behind and and wants to uh, ramp up fast. Well, uh, that's another, fair. An, another question comes from Dublin, Ireland. Nick is interested in your international section and wonders how he might access the organization uh, to be formally involved. And uh, would that be through the Internet again directly? Be the, be the same thing if he could come directly to us. I'll match. We do have a pretty active organization in Ireland, and we have some uh, a lot of good friends that we work with over there. So once again, if I can have his contact information, uh, whatever way is easiest for him, probably the Internet, yep. um, we'll get the information back to him so that he can get to, get linked up. By the way, Layton is between Salt Lake and Ogden, and right on the Great Salt Lake. You know, I, I you know, I uh, almost hate to say this, but I don't believe we have a club in Utah. It's strange. We've got he's surrounded by clubs. We've got a club in New Mexico, three in Nevada, two in Wyoming, three in Arizona, four in Colorado, and seven in Idaho. But not in Utah. But I did not see one listed for. Utah. No, I think that's you're right, Ron. There is a, there are two groups that are interested in starting clubs, and uh, hopefully they say they're working on it, and uh, that we've had contact with. But uh, and and it's a hotbed for fly fishers. Uh, we had good success, and we did go to a show this year in in Salt Lake, and uh, signed up a lot of folks. And amongst that group, there is some activity. So we'll match this gentleman up if we can just uh, have him contact us. I just went out to our directory and. I noticed there's one that might be, it looks like, we've, we put it up as a TU slash FFF um, called Stonefly Society of Wasatch. Yes. Utah. Yeah. 
so that that might be one. And uh, I don't. There there is a TU club there, and I'm not sure whether they're still affiliated, but uh, you know they've been around for some time. The U- Utah has a small uh, TU council, so you know, again, we'll help them with that. So that's yeah, that's exactly it. If there a uh, club doesn't exist, there's an opportunity for some volunteers to get one started. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, what, one more thing before we take a break here. Going back to Nick from uh, Ireland, uh, along those same lines, there's, if there's no clubs there, there's no reason why they can't create a club, an international club uh, as well, correct? Oh, absolutely. No, that's, okay. that's certainly true. We have, uh, you know, I've been helping some people in Australia. We've got, uh, I think, three clubs down there now, and, and uh, they've actually got a, a sub uh, of our casting certification program, which, uh, you know, we, we sent instructors down there and they sent some people up here and uh, we got their program going uh, in Australia and uh, we've got the same thing in Europe and so forth so uh, you know we can help over there that's for sure right well we'll be uh, taking a brief break and when we return we'll be answering more of your questions about the Federation of Fly Fishers Front Range Anglers a full-service fly shop located in Boulder Colorado provides premium tackle and comprehensive instruction and guide services to fly fishers across the country. In business for over 25 years and with a staff that averages 20 years of experience, they will give you the straight story on gear, places to fish, flies, and techniques. They publish a monthly newsletter that is one of the most informative and insightful electronic magazines in the industry. Find out more about this premier shop by logging on to their website at www.frontrangeanglers.com. That's www.frontrangeanglers.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Van Van Geitenbeek and Ron Cordes about the Federation of Fly Fishers. You can submit questions by clicking on the link on our website. Click here to ask Van or Ron your most important questions. We'll be answering as many as possible live on the show. Okay, I would like to move on to what uh, we've highlighted as a as an important uh, part of the. Uh, backbone and fiber of the Federation, and that is conservation. And I need to point out an honor that has been sent the way of the Federation recently. The IGFA, the International Game Fish Association, has awarded its 2006 Conservationist of the Year designation to the Federation of Fly Fishers. And I'll quote here. Quotes, for the organization's long and meritorious service to fisheries conservation with special emphasis on current events, end quote. It further goes on to point out several of the current uh, efforts by the Federation, the Mangrove Initiative uh, for hurricane-ravaged mangrove forest, a joint effort with Stripers Forever to gain uh, game fish status for striped bass, and also an uh, effort for Southwest Native Trout Restoration. Uh, They're also uh, doing battle in the California Delta fishery as well as the Columbian Snake River systems, just to mention a couple. So um, how would you like to introduce us to some of these conservation efforts that that you've got going? Well, where do we start? Uh, (laughs) Let's start with the ones you mentioned because there are others that are are interesting and and, Ron and I can take turns, I guess. The Mangrove Initiative is, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about was we hadn't been very active in saltwater. And uh, a lot of my friends, uh, because of the magazine and so forth, uh, were encouraging us to, to become more active. And they were starting to talk about how badly the, the mangroves, which 
at one time or another play home for almost 95% of all the game fish caught in, the, in Florida waters. And they had been torn up by the two hurricanes two years ago, and of course they've been suffering mightily because of development and so forth uh, down there. So the, the program really, in the case of the, of the uh, hurricane-ravaged uh, areas, starts out with clearing because the hurricanes were so bad in places like the Ding Darling National Refuge on Sanibel Island, for instance, where we are partnering with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, actually snapped off 100-year-old 100, 100 trees. It was just amazing. So... And, and block access into the back bayous and the nursery areas for, especially for snook and tarpon. And, uh, so the first step was to, uh, was to clear the areas, clear the channels, get the flows, so the tidal tides running again, uh, up into those key areas. And then the rest of it is a, is a planting program. There are basically three kinds of mangroves, and we went to the Rosensteel School at the University of Miami where they're expert in this, and, um, they help us make sure we put a black mangrove where a black mangrove is supposed to be in a red for a red and so forth because it does make a difference. And so then it's reforestation, not terribly different from uh, a TU chapter uh, putting uh, uh, willows back along a, a bank that's been overgrazed by cattle, for instance. Uh, so that program is spreading. Uh, it is it's just an exciting program because mangroves are so critical and people are beginning to really pay attention down there. As I said, our partner on the first couple of projects has been the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, but uh, we're working now with private developers and others. So this is a program that will go on for years and years and years and, and uh, you know, one that I think we're going to be very, very proud of. Van, before you go on to, to, to some of the other projects, uh, the, the mangrove uh, initiative, uh, when you talk about clearing that out and, and getting access back into the, uh, you know, the back biosis, that sounds like an expensive proposition to because you're talking about boats and dredging equipment and things like that. This isn't a bunch of guys out on a Saturday afternoon picking up brush, right? Well, no, it can, <laughs> it, it can be fairly expensive. For instance, we had a $35,000 grant this year in, uh, on Ding Darling, actually, to replace a number of culverts, which were so badly damaged that uh, they had to be redone. And, and uh, So, yeah, it costs money. We've had a... a some of our clubs down there have been great about they've always got the boats and they've got the saws and so on. But uh, we're continually out looking for uh, for help. And, of course, anybody with our organization and others, if somebody wants to be supportive of just that particular project, of course, they'd merely indicate that on their donation, and, and we do it. I think Bass Pro, for instance, uh, they're opening a new store out in uh, Fort Myers, and I think they're going to become good partners in that part of the project uh, in the <clears throat> Captiva Sanibel area. But yeah, it costs a lot of money. There's no question about it, and and it uh, and also a lot of Saturday afternoon brush clearers too. Yeah, they um, it, it it shows you though where some of this your donations and your membership fees go. You know, you're not just buying a magazine here. A lot of that money is going to, to efforts like that. Sure, in a project like that, we have a conservation director. You know, who's completely degreed and so forth and and you know she's down there working with u.s fish and wildlife and and uh, you know takes time to uh, and money to transport her there and she has to stay up on the science and uh, and be sure that what we do is absolutely right uh, from a science standpoint and it you know it costs money to pay her salary and keep her on the road uh, some of the other uh, uh, conservation programs ron there's uh you know something that often gets overlooked is the um the efforts at the club level, you know, we mentioned earlier that the Federation is a, a volunteer organization, and there's tremendous activities that go on at the club level that uh, often don't get uh, the publicity they deserve. And 
One of the fascinating ones is the Federation has uh, is sponsoring an Adopt-a-Stream program. Yes. And by adopting <clears throat> some water, the uh, you know we can get the clubs to foster a sense of ownership, and uh, they hold regular stream cleanup sessions. They monitor water quality. Uh, they do biological monitoring, and it, it creates a sense of ownership to uh, to local waters. That's you know very critical for their their long range uh, subsistence. That's it. It is terribly the the sum total of what 300 clubs do <clears throat> in a year. And if you took 300 clubs, probably two of them, 200 of them have at least one very good conservation project and and they do get lost in the shuffle we we uh do the best we can with the magazine and our club newsletters to uh to get the word out but uh uh they don't begin to get the credit they need, they deserve can you tell us about the legislative battle that you've uh, joined with uh, stripers forever on behalf of uh, striped bass sure um I think we all, or a lot of us probably understand the, the history, uh, the recent history of the striped bass. Back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, the striped bass population on, in the Northeast, uh, and when I say Northeast, I'm talking uh, North Carolina uh, up into the maritime provinces, um, had just crashed. We had uh, overfished it recreationally, and we had terribly overfished it uh, commercially. Uh, the states finally forced the federal government to uh, to put very very strict regulations on everybody. And during the uh, uh, the end of the 80s and into the 90s, there was a, a total resurgence or a great resurgence of the of the uh, striped bass population. Unfortunately, um, a lot of the with the Georgia's banks and some of the other commercial opportunities on the East Coast going away, uh, commercial fishermen turned their their uh, interest and efforts uh, to the striper, and they're just they're beating them up. Uh, populations are are down, and and uh, <clears throat> uh, one of the pluses with striped bass is they lend themselves very nicely to aquaculture. So that, as a Seattle resident, for instance, I was always able to get striped bass from a farm down in uh, in California, and it was a good, tasty product. So, with that in mind, and the fact that uh, you know the striped bass is far more valuable to the economy of this country as a recreational fish than it is as a commercial fish. We've started an effort in Congress, and uh, we've had a bill introduced a couple of years in a row, uh, which hasn't gotten out of committee, but that's sort of the process that you go through in this type of battle. Uh, I, I think within three to four years we will win the fight. Stripers will be strictly a game fish, but it's going to take a lot of effort, lots of letters, and all the... Um, the difficulties that go into winning a legislative battle. But uh, fortunately, we have economics on our side. We have uh, history with other game fish on our side now. That the net ban in Florida has made a huge difference, for instance. And I'm confident we'll win it. We just uh, ran a, a symposium of scientists and others uh, uh, in Foxborough, Massachusetts in May, uh, which was designed to primarily bring more, more uh, clarity and, and light to the subject. So we'll win it. It'll take a while. And isn't it true that at that symposium uh, there was uh, research which shows the true monetary values of the game fish versus commercial fishing aspect with striped bass? Yes, it, there 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 was, and it's it's just it's very very clear. Nobody is really arguing uh, about that. Uh, the federation did put some money into that uh, effort. Uh, which was started by Stripers Forever, uh, but uh, we, we did help, and now we're full partners with them. What, uh, uh, Van, how was that being served up? I mean, from a commercial fishery, was it a 
a fish that was being served as you know to the general public for eating purposes, or was it being used for dog food, or what? No, the the striper, of? the striper, unfortunately for the striper, is uh, is darn good eating. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, so it's it's been a, a food fish, and it's a fish that, gosh, from the time I was a, a youngster in New Jersey, uh, you could always go to the fish market at, and get striped, uh, and get striped bass. Uh-huh. And one of the things that just as a, as an aside, when I was a youngster, there was nothing in the Hudson River. I mean, your parents really didn't want you to put your foot in the Hudson River. And thanks to the efforts of, of fishermen and other uh, environmentalists, you know that's it's been cleaned up. Two years ago, there was a two and a half million fish run of striped bass all the way to the Troy Locks at Albany and Troy. And so, you know, it's easy sometimes to talk about all the things uh, that we've lost and so on. But you know, we're winning some, especially in fresh water. And and it just proves that if you if you work on a battle long enough, that's right. You know, you've got a good chance of winning it. Uh, and you know there'll be plenty of fish to uh, uh, to be at the Fulton Fish Market or whatever its successors uh, may be uh, through aquaculture. Well, the Fulton Fish Market is no more. <laughs> I know it is, but it's a good place to good place to fish for stripers under the lights, though. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's moved to Queens. I have a uh, a friend who's uh, executive chef at the Oyster Bar in New York City. And, oh, really? Uh, I okay. went with him to the Fulton Fish Market one morning. At, Four in the morning. Boy, was that an experience! But uh, you bet. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> it is. Well, um, can you? I don't think we talked about the the anglers against weeds. Is that something? Uh, yeah, we're we're very much involved in invasive species, and and many of the weed uh, families that we're having problems with uh, are invasive. Um, we here in in uh, Montana, where we get a chance to teach. Uh, oh gosh. Five, six thousand kids a year, and and maybe a couple hundred teachers. One of the parts of that is is showing them invasive weeds, and then going out and having something that's just as common. It's called a weed pull. But the important thing is, I mean, that gets rid of a lot of weeds at various sites. But the important thing is, people begin to recognize the the invasive species and why they need to go. And it makes them conscious, I think, of of how these things spread. And it is primarily being spread by we fishermen and boaters, uh, like the new, the mud snail and the uh, <clears throat> and whirling disease and uh, many of the things that people are familiar with. So with us, it's invasive species, and part of that is is the invasive weed. Uh, and and it's a, I mean, they're a serious problem. Well, I think, Don, uh, and, don't you have a problem with those weeds on your place up in Belgrade? Uh, no, that's a different weed, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I do have uh, uh, he, he's referring to my, uh, my challenge with the Canada thistle, but uh, uh, I do have a question from Joe in Rapid City, South mm. Dakota, who refers to uh, the good works that are being done by Federation and how tickled he is to be part of that and how much he enjoys the magazine, but he refers to some of the uh, creeks in the Rapid City area which have been infected with the Didymo fungus that uh, seems to be slowly spreading its way around the world. And uh, he wonders, uh, in part, if the Federation is going to focus uh, specific efforts on these invasive species and perhaps even uh, have an educational aspect in that in the Fly Fisher magazine. Well, I'm glad you really you brought that up. The Didymo Serafina geomata is uh, is a real problem child, and we with sort of burst upon us in, in the last uh, couple of years. One of the first places was over in the Black Hills. Um, <clears throat> this 
particular, it's a single cell diatom, and it's been, it's endemic to the northern hemisphere. It's always been here, uh, whether it be Europe or here or, or uh, Russia. But it's always been a very minor uh, problem. It's just something that existed along with everything else. As an example, on the Boulder River here in Montana, we've been monitoring one fork of the Boulder for a number of years because there's a mine up there, and we don't—we're <laughs> watching those guys. And the uh, the Didymo has covered anywhere from five to ten percent of the bottom uh, for many, many years. Two years ago, it suddenly started covering ninety percent of the bottom, and now covers all of it. And what it does is suffocate everything underneath uh, it once this solid mat, and of course that kills all the bottom life, which feeds the fish and on and on. <clears throat> Realizing that nothing had been done on this, we got together with EPA uh, a year ago, raised the money, and co-sponsored a conference in May at Michigan, Michigan at Montana State University and uh, brought people in from literally all over the world. I mean, there were Russians and Poles and <clears throat> uh, New Zealanders and so forth. <clears throat> Excuse me, and, and uh, uh, it was the first conference. The abstracts are finished, and they're being sent out all over the world now. But this this thing is is uh, it's in Colorado, it's in uh, Arkansas, it's in Russia, it's uh, in all sorts of rivers here in Montana and California, uh, as it has been. But it is exploding, and nobody knows why. So we figured this was a serious problem that we had to jump into. Nobody else was doing it. And so we got together with EPA, and, and uh, hopefully because of the conference and because all these people got together and talked about it, uh, we'll begin to find out what we can do about it. But Certainly it's, uh, disturbing issues with these different invasive species. Yeah, but this one's not even invasive. This is not an invasive. That's the thing that's killing that's, that's correct. It has, a, it has a wonderful name, though. The, the uh, people, you know, Didymo is one thing, but the, but the scientists all call it rock snot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is awful looking stuff. It looks like something that came out of one of those, the Blob movies or something. Yeah, it is yeah. Uh, very unpleasant. So yeah, I mean we're we're very much involved in that kind of that kind of thing, and and uh, you know we see an opportunity, uh, a problem that needs to be approached. Uh, we work on it. We've been part of the group uh, working with uh, University of California Davis, uh, Trout Unlimited, Caltrout, and ourselves have been funding the uh, the work on on the New Zealand mud snail. Uh -huh. That one isn't an invasive species. Yeah, so sure. we're trying to uh, come up with a chemical treatment that uh, uh, fishermen can use on their boots and on the bottoms of the boats and so on and so forth. Uh, so, right. yeah, we're involved in it. You bet. It's serious. Could somebody maybe give us just a little brief rundown on what's going on in the uh, California River Delta? Sure. The uh, uh, Southern California wants, and the ag industry in the Central Valley wants the rest of the water coming down to Sacramento, and, uh, and the fish could use that. <laughs> that's, a, that's the short. And uh, so there's a proposal to take another, uh, I forget how many million feet, but another 20% of the water in the delta. That, of course, lets saltwater intrusion move up into the delta where the spawning goes on for striped bass and for many other species. And uh, that need to transition, the anadromous species that need to transition from freshwater where they're spawned to, to the salt. Uh, the second part is these huge pumps that are sending the water down south uh, pick up a lot of uh, small fish and pick up the spawn of striped bass, which happens to be a floating spawn. So it's a very serious problem. Uh, we're also experiencing some sort of toxic die-off now, which we're not sure what's uh, what's happening. So our aim is to stop any further freshwater <clears throat> from being taken out of the uh, the delta. 
We'll take just a little bit of a break here, gentlemen, and when we return, we'll answer more of the questions from our, our listeners out there on the Federation of Fly Fishers. This segment of our show is brought to you by John Kestner of John's Guide Service. John's Guide Service is Northern Michigan's premier fly fishing guide service and outfitter. Join John and explore the Manistee, Pear Marquette, and Osable Rivers as he guides trips for trout, salmon, and steelhead. Take a look at the website and see why John's Guide Service has so much to offer in Northern Michigan. www.johnsguideservice.com, that's J-O-N-S, guideservice.com, or contact John's Guide Service toll-free at 1-877-636-5603. That's 877-636-5603. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Van Geitenbeek and Ron Cordes about the Federation of Fly Fishers. If you'd like to ask Van or Ron a question, just go to our homepage at www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show, that says, click here to ask Van or Ron your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them on our, on our live show here tonight. Now, I was just uh, looking at those questions, and there was one that, uh, let's see here. Van and Ron, could you mention the free six-month program offered by the CIs for students? This is from Mike Kelly in Omaha, Nebraska. Assuming yeah, we referring had, to certified instructors. Right, right. Um, we had, uh, and, and trying to get, well, let me step back a little bit. One of the great problems right now is that is that our youth uh, are not taking up the outdoors, uh, you know, in the numbers that they used to, and, you know, video games, malls, and whatever the problem might be, urbanization. And so we've concentrated on trying to, uh, to come up with programs for youths, and one of the things that we have done is with our casting instructors who do an awful lot of teaching, and say, you know, go ahead and give these youngsters a six-month uh, membership in the Federation. We'll see that they get magazines and other material, and hopefully, you know, we'll spur their interest selfishly so that they'll be members of the Federation, but more importantly that uh, uh, it underlines uh, hopefully what they've learned from the casting instructor to start with. So we're trying to draw as many youngsters into the, into the sport as we possibly can. Well, that's interesting, that question coming from Omaha. Uh, I recently talked to some folks uh, with uh, Sportsman's Warehouse, and they indicated that the Omaha store has uh, one of their busiest uh, fly fishing departments, as I uh, was led to understand. Uh, I just wanted to touch back on a couple of uh, issues regarding conservation. Uh, one comes from Royce Blaircom in uh, Marysville, Washington, and Royce wonders about what the FFF uh, stance might be on issues such as hatcheries or dams on rivers or bait fishing, that kind of thing. Well, as you can imagine, we have a few. <laughs> hatcheries is an interesting question. A lot of people would like to dam all hatcheries, and I would say that, that uh, there is a place in modern fisheries management for properly run hatcheries. And that says that we can't go and make the errors that we made in the state of Washington. I was a commissioner there for six years, so I'm rather familiar with the problems. One of the things that we did with steelhead, for instance, is we thought one size fit all, and we took all of our hatchery stock from one stream, and that was stocked in river after river, and what it did was destroy the native populations, and we made just terrible mistakes. And 
the hatchery uh, reform uh, policy, which the federal government's been supporting, uh, re redoing uh, hatcheries has been tremendous. In anadromous fisheries, for instance, we never stock now a hatchery-raised fish whose parents didn't come from the, the uh, watershed into which we're going to stock them. So things like that, when I say properly run, there are a lot of pieces to that. But I think properly run hatcheries are a necessary tool of modern-day uh, uh, fish management. Um, when it comes to uh, what's the other part of the dams, well, what, dams on rivers. I don't, and I don't think we ever met it. Did we ever meet a dam we liked? Uh, perhaps <laughs> not. <laughs> well, uh, uh, we we might want to point out that when you said dam dam the fisheries, you probably meant D A M N. Yeah, uh, that's there's some truth there. <laughs> the uh, the dams we work very closely with TU, for instance, uh, and and uh, when the FERC, the Federal uh, uh, Energy uh, Organization, every 50 years they have to reauthorize these dams, and we have been extremely active uh, with TU in in uh, questioning the necessity for dams, and and you know we got rid of quite a few so far. Really, some some excitement. There's another thing that can happen. For instance, years ago. Um, the Green River fishery was going to pot uh, below the, below uh, uh, Flaming Gorge Dam. The problem was that as the lake filled, the water was strictly drawn from the bottom of the reservoir, and it became so doggone cold that it uh, practically killed it killed the life and cut down the growth of the fish and so on and so forth. We came up with a proposal at that time to uh, put a uh, a big tube, if you will, over the over the outtake with louvers in it, so that any temperature within the reservoir could be accessed and pumped down the river. So once that was done, uh, you've got your good 55, 60 uh, degree temperature water going down the river all the time. I was just amazed recently to find out that the uh, some of the recently built reservoirs in the Catskill Mountains are not so equipped. And, uh, in fact, we had a letter went out of here today to the Department of Environmental Quality in New York uh, uh, questioning why not and what they were going to do about it. So we're going to start a fight over there, too. Uh, so, you know, a lot of dams have provided great tail race fisheries for us and, and wonderful bass fisheries and so on. And, and uh, here again, if we manage them in the best way we can as far as minimum flows, uh, temperature controls, et cetera, uh, you know, there are probably a few we might like. <laughs> well, Len Anderson over in Esco, Minnesota, wonders about uh, stream improvement at local levels what about uh, in an inner city stream that might not lend itself to fly fishing? Would that be something that the the federation uh, might still have an interest in and be involved with? I think it's a great teaching tool. I mean, if you can get uh, youngsters uh, involved in in uh, bringing back a, a stream, regardless of what fish might be in it or whether or not it's big enough to fly fish or not. I mean, there again, you get back to the education aspect, and uh, what a wonderful teaching tool uh, something like that is. I've been involved in in uh, inner city um, restoration of streams, and it's just great for kids. It's a wonderful tool. So yes, we would definitely be interested in that. Well, I know they've been talking here. I'm I'm in the Denver area, and uh, I know Van Year from here. Uh, I've lived here for quite a while. The um, and you with Chatfield, they're talking now about looking at trying to uh, uh, do some work on the, the river below Chatfield and, in essence, turn that into a tailwater fishery. 
which you know up to this point it has not been a real fishable place. It's it's always been an opportunity, and it's an old proposal that uh, should have been looked at a long time ago. And uh, you know, living there, you know how tough the Denver Water Board is to work with anything that has uh, the word environment mixed up in it. Sorry, that's an old bias, but it's the truth. <laughs> but that's uh, that's getting pretty close to the city, in fact, uh, and we create some great opportunities. But, oh, terrific! Uh, and and uh, you know there always have been a few escapees that came through the dam somehow, and and uh, down as far as Littleton. Uh, gosh, when I was living there a few years ago, you could catch trout now and then. Well, maybe maybe something will come of that. If nothing else, the the process and the, the efforts would at least clean up and help to clean up the area. And, and mm -hmm. That can be nothing but good, I suppose. I think there's a real opportunity, and, and you know, it's a, it, of course, it's they're very trout-oriented in, in Colorado as well. They should be, but uh, uh, you know, there's a wonderful warm-water fishery like uh, you know smallmouth bass, and it may be by the time you get down as uh, close to downtown, um, you know, if there's enough oxygen in the water down there, it might become a, a smallmouth fishery. It's a heck of a fly rod fish. Well, and, and we all always don't have to go out into the hinterland to have good fly fishing opportunities. It's uh, impressive the number of towns and cities which have really reasonable or even better than reasonable fly fishing in right within the city limits, uh, I think, in terms of uh, Canyon City, Colorado, or mm -hmm. fishing, say, the little Lehigh River in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, lots of opportunities in any place that we can improve water quality and and enhance the uh, opportunity for fish to grow will all benefit from that. You bet. That's especially true of saltwater. And we did a series with a magazine of uh, urban urban fisheries, and uh, you know whether it's New York or Boston or Baltimore or Jacksonville or Miami and around on the West Coast uh, in places like San Diego and L.A. Harbor. Uh, there's really some excellent fishing, and in most cases, it's getting better in each of those cases. So, uh, you know, you're absolutely right, and, and uh, you know, it's pretty easy for kids to get out on assault sometimes when they're in, in a town where it might be a little harder for them to get up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, let's move on. Just we have a number of questions regarding membership in the Federation of Fly Fishers. Could you describe the different membership levels? How about it, Ron? You up for that? <laughs> sure. We've actually got 12 different membership categories. They range literally from a <clears throat> free membership for um, disabled vets to uh, a <clears throat> lifetime couple membership. So there's just about every category under the sun, senior memberships, youth memberships, couples, three-year family, one-year family, lifetime. We pretty much... Uh, struck on about every combination you might want to think of. And and if they want to access that information, again, they could go to www.fedflyfishers.org and, and have information. I do have one, one pointed question from Tom C. in Bel Air, Maryland. And he recognizes that you have different memberships, including seniors and life membership. He wants to know why you don't offer a senior life membership. I saw that. That just jumped out at me. And, you know, <laughs> despite what Ron says, and he's absolutely right, I mean, we thought we had the whole waterfront covered. But I read that, and I thought about it, and I said, well, you know, the reality is a senior probably isn't going to live as long, so maybe the investment should be a little less. And I wrote myself a note and said, we've got to take a look at that and see if there isn't some justification to take care of our seniors in that manner. So there you go. Thank, oh. thank him for the question. That was uh, That's a help. I, w I would like to have him uh, send in some ideas on what he thinks the uh, cost should be. 
There you go. <laughs> it probably turned out to be an actuarial from an insurance company. Yeah, yeah, time versus money. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. My father just told me that he now has a free fishing license here in Colorado because he, he achieved an age at which you can you can qualify for that. So I think they uh, do that in a lot of states. Uh, yeah. They do. They do. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing is, oh, you know, if people, you know, retire at 65, if that's what is a senior, you know, very often they're probably more flush right then than at any time in their lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we'll try to not to think about that and, and consider that everybody's on, on Medicare and, and uh, you know, and, and we will take a look at that, that suggestion because I think it's a good one. Well, one of the, the questions that came in is, and, and I, I know where this is coming from because I didn't know a lot about the, the FFF two years ago, and if somebody would ask me a question, I would have been kind of, you know, just lost for an answer. This question says, is, is the Federation just for beginning fly fishers, it's based around education, or is there, is there something for everyone in the, in the Federation? So well, there's absolutely something for everyone. I think, you know, early on when I spoke about the incredible educational opportunities of the Conclave, one of the fascinating things, of course, is that there's a large segment of activities for the beginner. And there's a large segment of activities for individuals who are certainly at least categorized as advanced fly fishermen. So the Federation is there actually to address the interests and the needs of all levels of fly fishers. You know, Ron, it's interesting. I, you know, you talk about the 100 and 110, whatever it is. I one day, just for fun, I sat down and, and said, okay, I'm a, you know, reasonably experienced fly fisherman and so on. You know, what's in it for me? And I looked, I looked through and I, I checked off 24 of those various sessions classes that I would have enjoyed going to mm-hmm. because there was there was something to learn there and it's another uh, thing that it does too is that it gives you an opportunity to get an introduction to perhaps uh, types of fly fishing that you're you're not able to enjoy where you live I know uh, out here in the Rockies we get uh, obviously plenty of trout fishing but we certainly don't get any saltwater fly fishing and I, I would certainly love to learn more about saltwater fly fishing the conclave gives me that opportunity Mm-hmm. And they're now fishing. Now, now there's a lot of fishing for carp, and there's something that people are just clamoring to learn more about it because yep. it is really, it is not easy, and those things are like a great big black drum that you get going with your fly, and it is really tough to stop them. So it's, a, you know, it's amazing what uh, what you can find to learn. Still, uh, you know, we, that's one of the great things about fly fishing is you never stop learning. Sure. Well, here's a question. Um, this gentleman or this individual indicates I'm a guide. What can the FFF Guides Association do for me? That's an interesting question. You know, they the would describe what that is, too. Yeah, the Guide Association basically is a mechanism uh, for guides to promote themselves, their character, their capabilities, their experience level, uh, in order to give someone an opportunity to, to locate a guide and characterize that guide in, in whatever region of a country he would like to fish. And interestingly enough, what we have found out, and frankly I was a little bit surprised about this, it is one of the most frequented sections of our website. The Guides Association gets a tremendous number of hits. People are obviously going in there and checking guides likely in their region or where they intend to go fishing. And uh, so I would tell this gentleman, this guide, that uh, frankly this is an outstanding opportunity for him to uh, promote his existence and his capabilities. You bet. And you're averaging how many hits per day? Oh, thousands. Yep. Yep. 
The interesting thing about that is, is uh, you know, just like the casting certification program, the, the having certified casters, we look at that as a service to the fly fishing, you know, actual or wannabe uh, part of the fly fishing world. In the same way, uh, we do that with guides. Here's a guide who has who has meet certain criteria, and and uh, we want a fly fisherman to be able to come to our website and look at you know wherever he's going and find somebody that that uh, you know he can have confidence in calling and hiring. So that's it, and we'll do that same thing, uh, you know, in the future when one of us gets time, we'll get started on doing the same thing in, in uh, lodge locations. Not whether the food is good or how thick the feather uh, cushion is, but, you know, is this a place, is this a lodge that is equipped to handle fly fishermen? Do the guides know fly fishing? Uh, and it is a good area in which to fly fish. So, again, a service to the uh, uh, to the sport. When you're talking about the, the certified instructors, if uh, I wanted to find a certified instructor in my area, for instance, in the Denver area, mm -hmm. uh, is there an easy way to go about finding? Because you've just sparked my interest in, yeah, why not go to somebody that's that's very well qualified? So, so how would I find an individual like just, that? Uh, fact, again, uh, email email us, call us. Um, uh, Ron, is your is that part of the site up so that they oh, yeah, can click on an area? It's been up for some time right now. You uh, can go into our website and there's a section called <clears throat> casting certification and part of that website allows you to locate uh, master casters, certified casters, whatever around the country. Okay, great, great. You can literally do it, you know, by location, search by location. And yes, there are some in Denver. <laughs> yeah. uh, back to the guide uh, uh, association question. Does the Federation evaluate the guides and the service they provide, or how, how is that assessment done? We're not evaluating them yet. I mean, we, we clearly look at the credentials of a, of a guide, and uh, we're operating on the premise that he's being you know, truthful and accurate with us, and we'll, we'll believe that until we're otherwise notified. But in the long term, that that issue may well be addressed of, of certifying guides the way we have certified casters. Uh, but it's going to be part of the evolutionary process of this guide association. Okay. Well, we, uh, we have a significant uh, population in the fly fishing world of women, and we have a question regarding the place in the Federation for women and if the Federation offers special programs for women. And I might point out uh, on our uh, show of about six weeks ago on, fly, on women in fly fishing, the Federation played an active role in women getting organized in fly fishing. But uh, why don't you tell them what you've got to offer? Well, there's two, there, there, there are two trains of thought, first of all. One is the woman who says, you know, I, I don't care whether I'm happy to be in a club with the men and I'm as good as they are, and by golly, you know, look out. And I've got some wonderful women presidents of clubs that are just cracker checks. You know, if I could clone them, I'd be delighted. There are others who would prefer to fish with with their own gender, uh, you know, for whatever reason. So, um, you know, obviously we have women in our clubs, uh, and and some of them there's a lot of them. But we have some women-only clubs, and and uh, the only um, admonition there on a women's-only club is that their their constitution does not forbid uh, having a male member, but you know it's pretty obvious if it's a women's club, and uh, there are some wonderful women's clubs in the country. Uh, I mean, I think of the Northwest Women's Fly Fishers in Seattle and the uh, 
what's the group that run the 400 odd that they have in the, in uh, Michigan? That's a wonderful group. Oh yeah, yeah, the one that Dorothy's associated with. Yeah. So you know there there uh, there there are places for both, and it just depends on the individual and how they wish to uh, to approach the sport. So that we give them two different options there. Um, there's a great deal of encouragement um, in the in the fly fishing education uh, for uh, women, and uh, frankly, I'm having taught, and I know Ron has too. I tell you, they're a whole lot easier to teach than a man. They learn it much more quickly, and uh, it's partly because they listen, and partly because I think they don't think they're you know, athletes, and they're they're going to understand the rhythm of the sport as opposed to trying to muscle their way through it. So, um, bring we them on. We're just delighted to have uh, women involved. Yeah, we also have we also have uh, what's referred to as the outreach program, which is a yeah, program for women uh, by women uh, federators. And once again, if you go up on the uh, Federation website, you'll see a, a tab there referred to as Women's Network. And it talks about that outreach program. And if, if uh, any women are listening to this broadcast, I would certainly encourage them to go up and read through that material. It's very interesting. And, uh, you know, we support the states that uh, have, have the federal state program of, of uh, women in the outdoors, and we in many, many states, uh, you know, provide the fly casting uh, instruction uh, at, at those get-togethers. I did just uh, check on I mentioned that uh, Women's Network on the website. One of the interesting things that we do there is we have featured articles uh, by women, uh, you know, featuring their, their fishing experiences, which we post and log, and they can be searched. Yeah, on our club's directory, uh, Fly Girls of Michigan, would that be the club you That's were That's it, uh, Fly Girls, 400 and some odd, and they bring in, and one of the things they do is bring uh, uh, young women in from uh, other countries each summer and uh, to a camp and teach them fly fishing and stream etiquette and ethics and all that good stuff, and it's a wonderful program. Right. Well, we've got a question that just came in on the Internet from Richard Mercer up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and... Um, that's a tough question. What is being done to encourage Canadian fly fishing clubs to join the FFF? I have found stiff resistance in the local Calgary club for a number of years when I have suggested club membership in the FFF. They do not perceive that the benefits outweigh the cost. What would you, uh, what would you say to this gentleman? I would say he's probably right. Um, <laughs> you don't want to hear that, I guess. But no, the reality is, and I go back to my TU experience, and, and I have a lot of friends in, in Trout due to Canada or Trout Unlimited Canada. We've discussed this a lot because I've called and talked to them, and they and, and their attitude is, and I think properly, when you're ready to put a Canadian organization together. So it's the Fly Fishing Federation of, of Canada, just like uh, you know the one in Australia, for instance. So they're strong enough to do things on their own because politically and in many ways, I think it's important that uh, that the Canadians. Uh, stand together. So the, the challenge for us is to get the the horsepower. I think the interest is there, and and get up there and spend the time to put together the Canadian organization, which would be a shoulder to shoulder thing, obviously uh, between ourselves and them. Uh, but uh, you know they really need to have a Federation of Fly Fishers Canada, and I and I think that's uh, Ron may counter me on that, but I think that's the way I think we should be going, and I know the. British Columbia group, which is very strong, feels that way. And, and yeah, no, I agree. Ron may give me time to get off and, and get after that program in another year, and, and that's yeah. how we'll approach it. 
I believe that email was sent by a gentleman floating on the Bull River with a wireless. He wants to keep us off the river. There you go. Well, uh, gentlemen, we're we're getting close to our end here, but we wanted to give you the last couple of minutes to talk uh, the long-range goals of the FFF. And uh, John in Athens, Ohio, said, what is the vision for taking the FFF from a good organization to a great organization? So you want to just spend the last minute or two here talking about your, your vision and goals? Well, you know, I'd like to make a, one quick comment before I forget it. You know, I think the show has been interesting from the standpoint that it's revealed the multifaceted nature of the Federation. There's so much about the Federation that, in a sense, is behind the scenes that people don't really get the opportunity to see. And, and perhaps some of that has been revealed tonight. And listening to Van, I think you recognize that we're lucky to have Van, and it represents, uh, Van represents tremendous horsepower for the organization. But any volunteer organization needs two things. One, needs the volunteers, and secondly, it needs the money. And so, obviously, one of our long-range goals is to increase membership uh, so that we indeed do have the funding that allows us to expand our operations. I think, you know, obviously we want to, you know, we want to build more clubs. Uh, we've got to build more program in, in all areas. And uh, we've got some very strong councils and clubs. And in a lot of places, we're, ba we're pretty much non-existent. So we've got a basic building a chore to do. The gentleman in Ohio, for instance, Ohio has now uh, has enough members and clubs and is breaking off and have their own council, which is what we want to happen in each of the states. <clears throat> so, you know, we've got to build the organization. We need numbers. We've got to build a bigger, stronger board uh, that uh, is and that helps us have a better funded organization. I noticed that somebody asked, uh, where do you see us 10 years from now? And I would say, you know, we'd probably be a very strong organization, uh, have a great additional number of councils and a Canadian organization, uh, probably 50,000 regular members and another 50,000 in affiliates, and we'd be that much more of a, of a force to be reckoned with in, in uh, conservation and education, which are the things that we do. And I think we can say that uh, the bottom line is costs related to the Federation of Fly Fishers are an investment rather than a cost. Well, great, gentlemen. We're going to have to cut you off here. It's, uh, unfortunately, it's time to wrap things up. Uh, but when we return, we'll be drawing for that family membership, that one-year family membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. So, folks, stay tuned uh, to see if you win. This section of our show is brought to you by Women's Fly Fishing in Alaska, which is owned and operated by well-known guide Pudge Kleinkoff. Her Women's Fly Fishing offers several lodge-based fly fishing schools for women, as well as an array of a small group guided trips for women and couples to some of Alaska's best-known waters for salmon, rainbow trout, arctic grayling, and char. Pudge leads saltwater fly fishing groups to Mexico each spring, and at these, beginners are welcome, and she provides all necessary equipment. Learn more about fly fishing for women at www.womensflyfishing.net or email her at pudge at womensflyfishing.net. Phone number 907-274-7113. That's 907-274-7113. From our global events calendar today, we see there's a, in Keystone, Colorado, the International Women Fly Fishers Regional Rendezvous, which is scheduled from August 17th through the 19th. Attendees will be fishing the local Blue and Colorado Rivers, as well as the lake 
uh, near their cabin, uh, just within a mile. They'll have introductory fly casting lessons available, and the event is sponsored by the IWFF and by Char Bloom. Uh, you can go to the calendar on the website and ask about flyfishing.com, or you can uh, and look under Colorado, or you can go to www.sharbloom.com. And remember, list any fly fishing-related events yourself on our events calendar. Don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing-related happenings on the calendar. And each week, we will select one event to highlight on our show. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and uh, give us your feedback about the show. You'll find a link on our homepage in the section by tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and, and leave your comments, which are appreciated. Now it's time to give away that one-year family membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. This membership is good for you and your spouse, as well as your children under 18 years of age. And in case you're wondering how we do this, we just press a button and up pops a name. Our computer randomly selects someone from the show's registration database. And if you didn't register tonight, make sure you do so on our next show, because that's where we get these names. If you're the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your gift. So we're running out of time, so I'm going to move fast here. Uh, we're going to do the drawing, and let's see who we've got here. Winner is... Don Frazier in Colorado. Don Frazier in Colorado just won a family membership for the Federation of Fly Fishers. Excellent. Yeah, congratulations, Don. Well, Dan and Ron, uh, we can't tell you how much we appreciate your being on the show tonight. We know you're busy with the conclave coming up, and we'd like to thank you for uh, informing us about your wonderful organization, the Federation of Fly Fishers. And again, we think in terms of the need for volunteers and the, the investment that we're making in the future for ourselves and for future generations. Well, our, our next uh, broadcast will be on August 2nd at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on this show, we'll be interviewing John McMurray on fly fishing for bluefish in the eastern seaboard. John specializes in guiding and fishing Jamaica's Bay's 10,000 acres of salt marsh flats just minutes away from New York City. It's going to be an exciting show, so don't miss it. And we'd like to thank 3M Scientific Anglers and R.L. Winston Rod Company for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.